It's page 705. So if you have one of our Bibles, it's page 705. Now we're going to read from that in just a minute. But I'm going to recap first kind of where we've been in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, from the very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, we've seen Jesus do a lot of things. Uh, we've seen him call and invite these 12 men to follow him more closely than anybody else. We've seen him go village to village and do miraculous things. We've seen him heal the sick. We've seen him feed the hungry. We've seen him cast out demons. We've, we've heard him proclaim this mysterious gospel of the kingdom of God, saying the kingdom of God is near. We've seen him walk on water. We, we've seen him calm a storm. We've seen him raise the dead. We've seen Jesus do some uh, miraculous and amazing things. And yet we've heard more of a question about Jesus' identity than we've heard a statement. Up until this point in the Gospel of Mark, we have not heard one person make a claim about the identity of Jesus. Instead, we've heard questions, right? I mean, after the calming of the storm, the disciples are left kind of going, who is this? Like, who is this man? We've asked this several times in our time together on Sundays, like, who is this who is this man, Jesus, that can do all of these things that we're seeing in the story of Mark? And I think Mark is telling this story this way for a reason. He's going to bring us all to a very specific place this morning in the text. And what we're going to read this morning is kind of the watershed moment of Mark's story. And that was the kind of the, the, the idiom or the phrase or the metaphor that kept hitting me all week was, this is a watershed moment in Mark's story of Jesus. Now, that's an idiom that we use fairly regularly, but I just want to make sure we all understand what we mean by a watershed moment. You know, a watershed is simply a high point that kind of divides the way that water will flow on either side. That's a watershed. So to give a concrete example, um, in North America, we have a continental watershed. It's called the Continental Divide, and it runs along the ridge of the Rocky Mountains. And if you're on the west side of that continental divide and you're hiking in the Rockies, every stream, every river, every creek that you see is all flowing to the same place, and that's the Pacific Ocean. It's all going to find its way into the Pacific Ocean. But as soon as you step over that continental divide, the direction of everything changes. Everything changes. Every stream, every creek, every river that you see on the east side of that continental divide is eventually going to find its way into the Atlantic Ocean. And so a watershed moment is, is this moment where everything that you've been seeing has been going one direction, and then you get to this moment and everything changes. And we've all had watershed moments in our lives. I think about one particular in my life when I was 19 years old, I was a freshman in college, and uh, up until this point in my life, I really had believed with everything that I was that my life was leading to a career in the medical field that I was gonna do something in the field of biology, whether it was be a doctor or a veterinarian or follow in my dad's footsteps as a dentist. I believed that's where my life was going. And then I can remember being a 19-year-old freshman in college in second semester chemistry. And I remember the very first test I took in second semester chemistry, and I got the lowest grade I'd ever received on a test in my entire life. I, I mean, I flunked it bad. But I remember like looking at the other students that were pre-med students around me and I knew there was something different about them and me. They actually liked studying. Like, they, they thought it was fun to study this stuff in chemistry and I despised it, I hated it. And I realized that maybe what I thought my life was heading was not where my life was really was heading. And I, I had to face this decision of do I change my major 
as a freshman in college who up until this point, I thought everything was leading to me being a doctor. And I remember going outside of town to this, uh, there's a mountain outside of the town um, where I was in school called Sugarloaf Mountain, and I hiked to the top, and I sat up there, and I remember just wrestling with God, and I made this decision that would change the rest of the trajectory of my life. I made a decision to change my major and go a different direction. And I wouldn't be standing here today if I hadn't had that moment. It was a major watershed moment in my life where everything up to that point I thought was pointing to me being a doctor and everything after that changed and sent me in a different direction. That's the kind of moment that we're going to encounter in Mark chapter 8 this morning. It's a watershed moment for the disciples that we're going to read today, but I believe it's also a watershed moment for humanity. A watershed moment for humanity's understanding of who God is and what God is like. So let's jump in and let's read Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. He said, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. This is the word of the Lord out of Mark chapter 8. Now, this watershed moment, I think, that Jesus is going to bring the disciples to, it comes in the form of two questions and a revelation. We're going to see Jesus pose two questions and then give a revelation. And so we're just going to go through verse by verse and see kind of how he does this. You know, in verse 27, it says that they're going to Caesarea Philippi. Last week, we had this story about this blind man, and they were in a village of Bethsaida. Well, Jesus is going to leave this village, and he's going to start walking, and they're going to go about 25 miles north. This is not a short trip for them on foot. They're going to walk about 25 miles to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. Many people think that what Jesus was doing was actually taking his disciples on a retreat. He's taking them on a journey to prepare them for the kind of change in understanding that they're going to have about who he is. And it's on the way, on this dirt road, on this path to Caesarea Philippi that Jesus poses them with a, with a very deep question. As they're walking, he looks at them and he, he asks two questions. One, who do people say that I am? And two, who do you say that I am? You know, I was talking to, to Larkin this week about this question. Larkin's teaching um, at Marathon this morning and over in Hillsborough Village tonight. And he and I were wrestling and, and he said, you know, this is kind of a funny question. I don't think I've ever actually asked somebody, hey, 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 who do you think I am? I mean, maybe if I'm being like sarcastic, like, who do you think I am? But never before have I asked somebody seriously, like, hey, who, who do you think I am? And I've never had anybody ask me, like, hey, who do people say that I am? Now, we, we might ask the question of, like, what do people think about me? Because we're kind of self-conscious, you know? And I'll be like, hey, does that person like me? Or, hey, did they think I was funny? You know, do they think I know what I'm talking about? We might ask that, but that's not what Jesus is asking here. He's not interested in people's opinion about him or what they feel about him. He's asking a question of identity. He says, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? 
And the entire story of Mark has been leading up to this moment. This question, who is Jesus? Who is this man, Jesus? And so he starts with the first question of who do people say that I am? And I think Jesus is doing two things with this question. The first one's really simple. He's kind of like doing a, a public opinion poll. He's Googling his own name, you know, he's trying to figure out what are people saying, and he knows that his disciples have spent time with the crowds, and they've been hearing what the crowds are saying, so he just asked them, who do people say that I am? And in verse 28, they answer, they say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. And these answers don't make much sense to us, but they made a lot of sense to these guys. And we can understand why people would think this about Jesus when we just look at a little bit of the story. So in Mark chapter 6, Herod had had John the Baptist beheaded. And it says that Herod heard about the things that Jesus was doing and he began to think that maybe this guy Jesus is John the Baptist come back and he's scared to death. And so you can imagine this is just a rumor that started emanating from Herod's palace that Jesus was none other than John the Baptist reincarnated. And he was going to come back and seek revenge on Herod. And there was a lot of fear for Herod. And some people held John the Baptist in high esteem. And so they were hoping, maybe this is, maybe this is John the Baptist. Another, another option was Elijah. This sounds kind of funny to us. Well, Elijah was an Old Testament prophet. And Elijah never actually saw death. Elijah was taken up into heaven before he died. And in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, at the very end of the Old Testament, there's this place where the Lord says that right before the day of the Lord, I am going to send Elijah to prepare the way. And so a lot of people thought, well, maybe Jesus is this Elijah. Jesus is Elijah. Come back. And the other option was, was the pro one of the prophets. Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, the Lord says to Moses, he says, one day I am going to raise up a prophet from among your people who will lead you, who will lead them to understand me. And so all of these options are actually looking at some of the hopes of the Jewish people. Maybe it's John the Baptist, maybe it's Elijah, maybe it's one of the prophets. And all of these are remarkably positive answers. And it shows that amongst the crowds, Jesus was held in pretty high esteem. But the amazing thing about this is that even though all of these answers, they, they rank Jesus among some of the most esteemed figures in Jewish history, but all of them fall short of what Jesus is going to reveal about himself in just a few short verses. And so the first thing Jesus is doing with this question of who do people say I am is just kind of an opinion poll to see what people are saying. But I think it's also just a genius discipleship move by Jesus. Have you ever noticed like, our tendency, I know I do this, maybe you don't, I do, but our tendency when someone asks us a very pointed question on a difficult issue, that it's easier to kind of deflect and talk about what other people think than it is to kind of answer your true feelings about it. Um, this happened to me a lot when I was living in Vancouver. I was, I was living in Vancouver, British Columbia, and my family lived up there, and the neighborhood that we lived in in Vancouver was kind of a political hotbed. It was very polarized. And the things people got upset about, I didn't fully understand it. It was kind of weird. And I remember people would come to me and ask me questions on some of these issues. And the truth was, I didn't know how to answer. I was kind of scared that if I said the wrong thing, I'm going to like flare off someone's temper, you know. And so people would come and ask me questions about, hey, what do you think about the gentrification in the neighborhood? Or what do you think about the increased density that, that they're putting in? Or what do you think about the police presence in our neighborhood? And I can remember I'd be like, well, you know, I, I can understand why some people feel this way and I can understand why others feel this way and I completely straddle the fence, you know? So as, I didn't really know what this person thought, so I'd straddle the fence so as not to rock the boat too much. Don't we, we do that, don't we? 
People, people ask us a pointed question and we, we try to deflect by looking at what others think. And I think Jesus is just opening the door so that the disciples don't have to deflect when he answers the question that's coming to them next. This question of who do people say that I am, it's a question that's still highly relevant to us today as well. You see, the truth today is there are no shortage of opinions in our world on who Jesus is. Everybody seems to have some idea about who Jesus is. There's this, this movement called the search for the historical Jesus. For the last two decades, there's been this group uh, called the, uh, the last three decades, I guess, there's been this group called the Jesus Seminar. And their goal is to understand the historic and accurate understanding of who Jesus is. And what they would say was that, yeah, he was a great teacher, a great moral leader, but we can't really believe any of the miraculous things he did. Those things probably didn't happen. If you talk to any Reformed or even Orthodox Jews today, they have an opinion on who Jesus is. They would say that, that Jesus was a Jew, but he was just any other radical zealot who was misinformed and misguided, and he died the death of a criminal, period, the end of the story. Muslims have a view of Jesus. The Islam, the faith of Islam says that, yeah, Jesus was a prophet, but that's it. No way he was a son of God. He was just a prophet. Pop culture has an opinion and a view of Jesus. Pop culture wants to look at Jesus and, and, and talk about, well, you know, maybe he was a religious leader, maybe he was a, a prophet or a mysterious cult leader. And there's all of these kind of uh, different theories and ideas that go on about Jesus leading to things. If any of you ever saw the movie or read the book Da Vinci Code, you know, all these mysterious ideas of maybe what Jesus was up to. Everybody has an idea or an opinion about who Jesus is. And this morning, if you're here with us and, and you are one who is still asking this question, you have not come to any conclusions yet. You know, you are welcome here. And I mean, we love you and we're so glad that you're here as a seeker, as a searcher. And what I would beg of you is don't let yourself get caught on this first question. You could spend years spinning your wheels asking the question, who do others say that Jesus is? But Jesus doesn't want his disciples to get stuck in this rut of only thinking about what other people say about him. Because he moves on and asks another question. And he's gonna ask that same question of all of us and it's the most important question that we'll ever face in our lives. It's the question that he asked in verse 29. He says, what about you? Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? It's the most important moment for the disciples up to this point. They've been asking the question, who is this? You know they've been having conversation amongst themselves. I mean, you can imagine the 12, whenever Jesus goes off on his own to pray or, or whatever, you imagine the 12 kind of talking like, who is this guy? Who is, do, do you th is he one of the prophets? I don't know. I just, you know. Well, Andrew, what do you think? I, I mean, could he, could he be, the, could he be the, the Messiah? Could he be the Christ? I, I don't know. You can imagine them going back and forth. But in this moment, it's really clear that they have come to a conclusion. You see, when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? In the original language, the you there is a plural you. So what Jesus is really saying is, who do y'all say that I am? And Peter, the one courageous enough to stand up and speak, he's kind of become the spokesperson for the 12. Peter stands up and he gives an answer. And I want us to enter in with the disciples to, to the excitement, the nervousness that they have in this moment. 
They've been talking about it. They've been asking each other. And finally, Peter stands up and he says, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. Now that, that word for us, it doesn't carry as much weight maybe as it did for them in, our, in our, just our basic understanding. You know, the word Christ, it's not Jesus' like, last name. It's not his name. The word Christ is a title. Christ is, is the Greek translation of the word Messiah, Christ and Messiah, same word. And what it means is anointed one, one who is anointed. And so for, for Peter and the 12, they, they have been wrestling with this and finally they say it out loud for the first time. No other person in all of Mark up to this point has ascribed a title to Jesus. The only ones who have are the demons and God. No person yet has said, this is who Jesus is. And Peter stands up with excitement and he says, you're, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. Now the level of excitement they must have felt was because of their understanding of this word Messiah, their understanding of the word the Christ and what it meant for the Jewish people. I did a lot of reading on the word Christ and Messiah this week trying to understand what must have been going on in their hearts as they wrestled with this understanding of Jesus as the Messiah. And I learned several things. One thing I learned is that in all of the Old Testament, there's no reference, there's no one reference to the Messiah. Instead, there are lots of prophecies about a king, a ruler who would come in the line of David, a king like David who would reestablish the kingdom of David, the kingdom of Israel, and there was lots of hope in this for them. In Jeremiah chapter 23, I'll just read this. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5, one of these prophecies, this is one of the, the most common ones for the Jewish people. It said, the Lord declares the days are coming when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This was their hope. This was their understanding of the Messiah. We can actually, actually gain a lot of understanding about what they thought of the Messiah by looking at modern-day Orthodox Jews. Modern-day Orthodox Jews also have an understanding of the Messiah and a, and a continued hope for the Messiah. And so I did some reading on some Orthodox Jewish websites just trying to figure out who do they think the Messiah is. And they all referred to Old Testament prophecies. There wasn't just one about the Messiah. They drew from several places, Jeremiah 23 being one of them. And this is one description that I found. They said the Messiah will be a great political leader descended from King David. He will be well-versed in Jewish law and observant of its commandments. He will be a charismatic leader, inspiring others to follow his example. He will be a great military leader who will win battles for Israel. He will be a great judge who makes righteous decisions. The Messiah will bring about the political and spiritual redemption of the Jewish people by bringing us back to Israel and restoring Jerusalem. This is what Peter meant when he said, you are the Christ. And Peter and the other 11 just wait with bated breath. They've finally said it out loud. And they're waiting to see how Jesus will respond. And let's just look. Look at starting in verse 30. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must, must 
suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. I don't think this was the response that they were looking for. This wasn't what they had hoped for the Messiah. But let's not miss what Jesus is saying, okay? We know from Matthew and Luke's account of this story that Jesus actually affirmed their statement. He says to Peter, he says, Peter, blessed are you because this was not revealed to you by man, but was revealed to you by God. So in other words, you've got the title right. Yes, I am the Messiah you've been looking for. But then he goes on to do something more. And in this account in Mark, he talks about the son of man suffering many things. And let's not miss, this is really beautiful what Jesus is doing. He's saying, look, yes, I am that Messiah you're looking for. But then he references another Old Testament prophecy in Daniel chapter seven, where one like a son of man comes before God Almighty and he's given all power and authority and every nation worships him. So he says, yes, I am the Messiah you're looking for, but I'm also the son of man that you've read about and heard about. And then he goes on to talk about suffering and there's a direct parallel in the suffering of Jesus in what we read in Isaiah chapter 53 about the suffering servant, where it talks about a servant of the Lord that will be crushed for the iniquities and the wickedness of humanity, a suffering servant that will be led like a lamb to the slaughter, a suffering servant whom the Lord Yahweh will raise up again to see the light of life after being crushed. And you see what Jesus is doing Never before this point, never before this point had the Messiah been equated with the suffering servant. Never before this point had the Messiah been equated with the Son of Man. I didn't know that. And what Jesus is doing is he's saying, look, guys, you've got the title right. Yes, I'm the Messiah that you're looking for, but I am also the Son of Man who's going to bring all nations together to worship one God. And I'm also the suffering servant who's going to take the weight of the world on my shoulders and suffer and die on a cross and be risen from the dead. It's like Jesus is taking all the loose ends of every prophecy in the Old Testament, he's binding them up and he's saying, I'm him. I'm the one that they're pointing to. I'm the fulfillment of everything you've been looking for. I am more than just the Messiah that you thought you hoped for. I'm everything that your scriptures have been pointing to and leading to. It's one of the greatest revelations in all of Scripture. Jesus revealed as the fulfillment of every prophecy of God, as the hope of the world, the very Son of God, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. But the disciples, in their understanding of the Messiah, they just, they missed it. They're pretty disappointed by the response of Jesus. It says that he began to speak plainly to them and tell them all of this. And look, look at what Peter does in verse 32. He spoke plainly about this. No more parables, no more word pictures. He spoke plainly to them. But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. He said, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. You know, I think to understand Peter's rebuke, you know, we look at this and we go, oh, what a revelation. What a revelation from Jesus. How did they miss it? But man, we've got to understand how big this idea of Messiah, of Christ was. 
See, for centuries, the Jewish people had suffered and been royally mistreated by empires and kingdoms larger and more powerful than them. It started in the Old Testament. You know, we see the Assyrians come in and they capture and they send the Israelites into captivity. We see it with the Babylonians. We see it with the Persians. And in Jesus' day, they were seeing it with the Romans. For centuries, the Jewish people, the Israelites, had been mistreated, they'd been conquered, forced into captivity, they'd been massacred, they'd been the victims of genocide, they had watched their own children get slaughtered by more powerful kingdoms. We see that in the, in the gospel early as when Jesus was a baby. And the only hope that kept them going was their hope for this Messiah that would someday come and make things right and lead them back to victory. And so they say, you're the Christ, and this is what they're hoping for. And then Jesus turns and he says, look, yeah, I, I'm the Messiah. But as the Messiah, as the Christ, I'm not going to take up and brandish a sword and lead you to victory by inflicting suffering on those who have inflicted you. He says, as the Christ, I'm going to take up a cross. And I'm going to endure this suffering myself. And so it shouldn't surprise us that Peter responds the way that he does. He hears this and he says, no, never, Jesus. This will not happen. You're the Messiah. You're going to lead us, right? You're going to take us to victory. You are the great military leader we've been hoping for. You know, you can, you can just imagine Jesus hearing Peter saying this and turning around and seeing the other 11 there. And this week as I read this, I was reminded of Jesus' temptation when he's in the wilderness with Satan. And one of the things Satan does, he takes him to a high place and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, Jesus, all this could be yours if you'll just do things my way. And we know it was a temptation. Jesus was human, fully human, fully God, but fully human. And he, he felt this temptation. You know when Jesus turns and looks at the 11 and he sees Peter, there's this temptation. These 11 guys would follow him if he took up a sword. He could have human power. He could have human dominion. But look what Jesus does. He responds to Peter exactly how he responds to Satan in the wilderness. He tells Satan, he says, get behind me, away from me. And he says the same thing to Peter. And this is not because he hates Peter or because he's calling Peter Satan. He's responding to the temptation. And what he says to Peter is this. He says, you don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Jesus gives a clear distinction between man's understanding of what will make the world right versus God's understanding and knowledge of what will make the world right. Peter and the 11, they wanted human action to make the world right. They wanted revenge. They wanted to pursue justice by taking it into their own hands and following a great military leader. And Jesus says, you have in mind the ways of man, not the ways of God. See, the ways of man believe that things will be made right, that the world will be fixed, healed, and mended, that justice will be carried out through the actions of humanity. But the ways of God say that the world will be made right, the world will be fixed and healed and mended by the voluntary suffering and the dying of God in the flesh and his resurrection from the grave. This is a vastly different understanding of how the world will be made right. And so Peter rebukes him. 
And Jesus says, nope, you've got, again, you've got in mind the ways of man. I'm going to show you the ways of God. And this becomes the watershed moment for the disciples in understanding who the Messiah is, of who God is and what God is like. Up until this point, they've been hiking in the Rockies from the west, and everything that they've seen they thought was leading to one place, and that was Jesus as the Messiah, a great political military leader. And Jesus takes them across this divide. He says, no, guys, that's not where it's leading. It's leading to my suffering. It's leading to my death on a cross. It's leading to my resurrection. That is how things will be made right. And the way that Jesus states it is like necessity. He says the Son of Man must suffer. He must be killed. He must be risen from the dead. It's this absolute necessity. And from now on, you up to this point, every miracle they saw they thought was leading to one place. And from this point on in Mark's gospel, we're going to see Jesus taking them back to this point again and again and again and again. He's saying, listen, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to die. I must die. I must suffer. It's for the hope of the world. And from this point on, everything they have to, that they see is going to bring them to wrestle with the fact that they're walking right towards Jesus' suffering and death. I want us, though, to, to camp out, uh, to kind of close by camping out on this idea of Peter's rebuke. You know, it's really easy and, and tempting for us to be like, oh, classic Peter, bonehead move, doesn't get it, big, big shocker, you know, Peter doesn't get it. It's real easy for us to point the finger at Peter and say, man, why would he rebuke Jesus? He just called him the Messiah. Does he not get it? But as I looked at the story this week, I saw myself in Peter so much and I think there are many ways that we still rebuke Jesus like Jesus did, like Peter did. Because Peter had one understanding of who he thought Jesus should be as Messiah. And I think sometimes we have one understanding of who we think Jesus should be as Lord, as Christ, as the Son of God. And you know, we, we generally hate this idea. The world hates this idea. That the way the world is going to be saved is by the Savior dying. We hate it because it means in order for our world to be made right, Jesus has to suffer. He says he must suffer. Personally, we hate it because it means, look, your heart is so far gone from God's plans that the only way it will be made right is for God himself to come down and voluntarily suffer. I hate that message sometimes. It's offensive. Hey, the only way you're going to be fixed is God himself is going to have to die for you. The message of the cross was offensive then, and it's offensive now. And in many ways, we still rebuke Jesus. This week, I, I, I thought of three primary ways that I see myself and that I see the world rebuking Jesus in his message as one who has to suffer. The first way I see that we do this is, is through legalistic religion. You know, legalistic religion says this, basically. It acknowledges that there's something wrong, but it puts the emphasis on us as people having to do something right in order to fix things. I know my heart is wicked, so man, I'm, I just gotta pray a little bit harder. Gotta read my Bible a little more. I gotta serve the poor a little bit more radically. I can do this. I can make it right. And it's not just in Christianity. Every religion, that has been the message. Hey, if you wanna be made right, it's up to you. Do these steps and you will be made right. When we do this, though, we rebuke the very message of Jesus. He says, look, the only way it's going to be made right is if I suffer. 
I'm gonna take the weight of it on me. You don't have to anymore. And yet when we wrestle with legalism and pride and we think that it's up to us to do things right, when we rack ourselves with guilt, we're telling Jesus, Jesus, the cross was not enough. Your suffering was not enough. I've still gotta be, I've still gotta do it. And when we live this way, we rebuke Jesus and we make little of the cross. We say the cross is not enough. But Jesus says, no, the cross is it. The cross is everything. The cross is enough. So we rebuke him when we live as if it's still up to us to earn our way before God in legalistic religion. I think we also rebuke him sometimes when we place our hope in the wrong place, much like the disciples did. This happens especially in America. I see it in American Christianity a lot. Sometimes we live as if our hope is still in an earthly government. We live as if our hope is in our government legislating the right morality and making the right decisions. As if the the arrival of God's kingdom somehow rests on the shoulders of our government and those who make decisions for laws of the land. And when we feel they make a legislative decision that doesn't line up with our understanding of morality, we kind of throw a temper tantrum and throw a fit on social media or you know, whatever we do. And when we do this, it makes it look like, just like the disciples, we still believe that Jesus somehow needs our government to do things just right in order for his kingdom to come in. We act as though somehow we need to get in and wrestle the reins back to give them back to Jesus so he can be in control. Do you know how many governments Jesus has seen rise and fall and he is still the king? He is still the Messiah, and our hope is still in him alone. Yes, we need to care about our country, and we need to want the right things to happen, but our hope does not lie in our government getting it right. Our hope lies at the cross, where the king of kings, the president of presidents, said, look, I'm gonna take care of everything, I'm taking it on myself, and I'm gonna take the weight of the world on the cross, and I'm gonna conquer it with resurrection. That's where our hope is. So let's not pretend that it lies in some other earthly government and getting it right. It lies with Jesus. So I see that sometimes we still rebuke Jesus when we try to do it on our own in our religion or we act like our government has the power to make the world right again. And the third way I think that we do this is when we pretend that it's our place to take revenge when somebody hurts us when we harbor a grudge or bitterness towards people who hurt us. You know, when someone wrongs us or hurts us, we carry this weight, it hurts deeply, and we have options for what we do with that. And the way of the world says this, it says, look, that person wronged you, you deserve to wrong them back. You deserve to seek revenge. And sometimes we'll seek that revenge, but sometimes we'll just harbor it as bitterness and a grudge that sits and festers in our heart. And if we take the revenge, all we're doing is making ourselves just like the one who wronged us. And if we hold on to bitterness and a grudge, then we endure this kind of suffering because we live with bitterness in our hearts. And what we're saying there is, you know, it wasn't enough, Jesus, for you to suffer. It wasn't enough for you to suffer on the cross. Your suffering was not enough for the way this person wronged me. So I'm gonna make them suffer or I'm gonna walk around like I'm suffering, like I've been the victim of everything. And Jesus says, my cross is enough. My cross is enough. My suffering is enough. 
Our story does not lie with our religion. It does not lie with our government. It does not lie in our revenge. Our story for hope is found on a cross and an empty tomb. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that is where our hope is found. And I, I watched this play out radically this week. You know, we, we all saw the shootings in Charleston. I can remember when I first saw the, the picture of, of Dylan, the young man that did this, and I will confess the furthest thing from my heart was forgiveness or mercy. And then Friday, I... I turn on the news and I see him in his court hearing and I hear the voices of the victims of his family members, the family members of the victims of those he killed. And I hear them saying, telling him how much he hurt them, like, you hurt me, you hurt me. One person said, every fiber of who I am is hurt. You've taken the most precious person in the world from me. And I'll never forget hearing the next words out of them, their mouths. They said, I forgive you. I sat and listened through tears as person after person said, I forgive you. And then they started to say, just confess what you've done. They said, repent and turn to Jesus. He is your only hope. What a testimony to the power of the suffering of Jesus on the cross. What they're saying is, look, Jesus' suffering is enough for even you, Dylan. Jesus' suffering is enough for the most wicked, most horrendous things we could imagine. He says, I'll take the weight. I'll take it all on myself. The cross and the empty tomb is enough. It's everything. It's everything. In just a moment, we're, we're going to go take communion, and I, I, I want to leave us with two questions as we take communion this morning. The first question is this. It's the one that Jesus poses to his disciples. He says, who do you say I am? As you go to communion, wrestle with this question. Jesus looks at you and he says, who do you say I am? And this morning, if you're, if you're sitting here and you're somebody who has been searching and asking this question, you've been reading all the different opinions, Jesus comes to you this morning. He says, I wanna know what you think. I wanna hear it from your mouth. He says, I have the power to change the trajectory of your life to be the watershed moment in your life. Will you just confess that I am the Son of God, I am the Lord, that my death, my resurrection is enough? Confess it, pray with somebody, tell somebody else you believe it. Pray for more faith if you're struggling with believing it, just ask him for more faith. But take that question with you to communion, who do you say Jesus is? The second question is this, what are the ways that we are still rebuking Jesus in his statement that the cross is enough, that the cross is necessity? Maybe one of the three things that we talked about in living legalistically, living with our hope in government, or living with revenge and bitterness in our hearts, maybe something else. But what are the ways that we still rebuke Jesus in his words that his suffering is enough? I'm gonna pray for us, and then communion is all around the room. I just encourage you to get up and go with your friends, go with those that you came with, your family members, and take communion. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Thank God for the hope of the world. Let's pray.